Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is retired British Army Brigadier General Ben Barry, the Land Warfare Fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. His last job in uniform was as Director of the British Army Staff. Uh, this conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former Director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Ben, thanks so very, very much for joining us. Really glad to have you back on the program. It's my pleasure. I imagine you've got some great questions. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see about that in time, uh, Ben. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. Ben, I'm, I'm very glad you're joining us, and this is a conversation that's been long uh, overdue. But warfare is always changing, uh, but there is a widespread recognition that we, or widespread sense that we're at an inflection point uh, now, uh, given the lessons that we're learning uh, from uh, Russia's war on Ukraine, but indeed the lessons uh, that were drawn from the Nagorno-Karabakh War of uh, 2020. Uh, and indeed, it's the 40th anniversary of the Falkland Islands War, another war from which there are incredibly uh, uh, tangible lessons that are that are still relevant today. Uh, there are some who maintain that we haven't really gone through a disciplined lesson learned pro process. You ask senior army leaders, uh, they will tell you that before they have takeaways, uh, you know, making the case that any hasty conclusions about the utility of armor or aviation uh, may be overwrought by armchair quarterbacks, you know, that the United States Army or the British Army fundamentally would not fight the way the Russians are. But from your standpoint as a, as a strategist, what are the key takeaways? What do you think are the lessons that you could put hand on heart to and say, okay, here is, here is where we are, and here are what these things mean or not? Varga, I think the first lesson is strategy, the importance of having a, a, a grand strategy and a military strategy that's based on an honest and realistic assessment of the enemy that also matches ends ways to, meet, uh, to means uh, to deliver the operational and tactical outcomes, something that the Argentines failed to do in the Falklands, uh, the Armenians failed to do in the Caucasus, and Russia seems to have had difficulty doing in Ukraine up to now. The second one is leadership and command and control and the human factor, particularly uh, morale at small unit level. And thirdly, that the best way to achieve that in peacetime is through tough, realistic uh, combined arms and joint training. And certainly at a macro level, right, almost everything that folks have ascribed that Putin wanted to do has backfired. Uh, Zelensky is more popular than he ever was. The government is more stable than it ever was. The international community is more marshaled against Russia. NATO is expanding. I mean, you know, he, he has more troops parked on his border uh, than, than ever before. And that's even before we got into the economic sanctions, right? I mean, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. The international community may, might not have acted before, but this one was, was one step too many. Obviously, we'll see whether or not that's sustained. How do you um, right. I mean, there are all manner of people who are looking at that, the direct lessons, right? Um, armor, uh, the future of armor is cloudy. The future of combat aviation, army aviation, uh, or attack aviation is in question. Look how many attack helicopters the Russians have lost. Um, right. There are some lessons here, uh, you know, long range fires. They, they tested a hypersonic weapon. Okay. They may have fired two hypersonic weapons. It's unclear the impact uh, it had. From your standpoint, 
how are you assessing the utility of tanks, the utility of armor, the future of army aviation, long range fires? These are kind of old fashioned artillery duels uh, at this point and, and just sort of grounding, grinding village to village fighting, uh, which, you know, where, where are we in terms of the panoply of technology that's out there? But also what are, in your view, sort of the legitimate lessons to be drawing from a technical nature from operations uh, as we've seen them so far? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I think the first observation I'd make is in all our assessments of Ukraine, we need to be very cautious about what we're seeing because both governments, both the Ukrainian and Russians are trying to curate uh, the images that get out there into the public's space to reinforce their own narrative. And certainly if you take the Ukrainian government, initially they were trying to portray an image of, of doughty light infantry fighting bravely in the forests and urban areas and also making maximum use of US Javelin and British supplied Enmores. This is of course, despite the fact they had lots of RPGs of, of their own. Um, the narrative shifted a bit, um, but I think that with my military experience and also uh, the study of war, there's enough news reports now, particularly by independent international journalists to get a feeling for the character of the conflict. Let's start with that initial Russian attack on Kiev, where the air assault to see Hostomel airfield was rapidly counterattacked by Ukrainian forces and was not able to then receive the anticipated fly-in of VDV forces to seize, rapidly seize control of Kiev. Uh, quite clearly, the advance of the two big armored columns, one through Belarus and the other one through Russia, converging on Kiev from the north, failed. And it seems to have failed because uh, the Ukrainians had a higher standard of tactical capability. They appear to have been much better uh, motivated. They also had knowledge of the ground and they were able to fight in a way that maximized the defensive uh, capabilities of both the woods and forests and the, and the urban terrain. What I think you saw with those Russian armored columns was forces that were inadequately led and um, didn't employ combined arms tactics of sufficient quality. I mean, there's credible videos that show ambushes of Russian forces that a NATO battle group would have averted because as it went into the town or forest, it would have put out, put out infantry to protect the tanks uh, from an enemy ambush. So I think the first lesson is you can have the best weapons in the, in the world but if you don't use proper combined arms tactics and have practiced forces and adequate combat leaders, you're going to suffer the same sort of fate that the Russian armored columns did. I think what you can see now is the Ukrainians are showing much more of their tanks and armored, and armored vehicles uh, because they're playing a greater role in the relatively open terrain in the Donbass. And they're also being used for counterattacks and counteroffensives else, elsewhere. What I think is happening in the Donbass at the moment is Russia having declared that it wants to capture the Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast. It's seeking to do precisely that. It seems to be engaging in tactics that suit its limited capabilities. It doesn't seem to be attempting to advance more than one or two kilometers. It's also um, minimizing logistic risk by doing this. And I think it's creating a, a, a situation that allows it to pound the Ukrainian forces with mortars, with gun artillery, and also rocket artillery, 
attempting in a way to drive up their attrition and bleed, bleed them dry. And politically, of course, it'd be very difficult for President Zelensky uh, to give up control of the, of the Donbass. So I think what we're seeing is a war in which there's a certain amount of manoeuvre, but manoeuvre is subject on both sides to attrition. Uh, quite clearly, the war shows that artillery, both gun and rocket, hasn't gone away. Nobody should be surprised that uh, Russia is making great use of artillery. It's got a lot of it. In the Second World War, it called it the Red God of, God of War. And in some respects, it, it was right. Um, quite clearly, the Ukrainians are doing their best to do uh, counter-battery fire. And the M777s, particularly if extended range ammunition have been allocated, will help with this. It's still quite a challenging thing to do. And I imagine the Ukrainians are busy leveraging their drones uh, and their long range artillery like the 2S7 and indeed rocket artillery that they, they've got. Um, a word on ISR and drones. In some respects, this war has been the day of the drones. Both sides have made a wide variety of armed and unarmed drones. And there's been a lot of use at the tactical level of small commercial drones. For example, there's a soldier's charity in Ukraine that's buying drones in Europe and sending them to the, uh, to the front line. I think though that what this shows about drones is that drones are now part of the combined arms team. There was, for example, some experimentation I know that was done by the British Army a couple of years ago, where they pitted infantry platoons against other platoons, with one platoon having its own organic commercial drones and the other platoon having none. The platoon with drones always won. So if I was designing an army, I'd want every level of command from platoon upwards to have its own drones, which are under its control. But I'd also want to have at every level of command from company up, upwards an anti-drone capability. Now, some of that could be uh, systems that are otherwise used for ground-based air defense. But if you don't have the ability to keep the drones off your back at company level, and the other side's got drones, I think you're going to lose. How does that seem uh, to you? Uh, it, it seems to me, uh, it seems to me very good. Um, um, where do you put uh, command and control, right? I mean, at this point, uh, it's interesting that the Ukrainians have built a very self-forming, right? People are getting on the phone, phoning in what they see. So it's, it's a uh, remarkably extensive and granular command and control system. But it, however, freeform, the, the Russians are increasingly communicating or have been communicating on open channels, which has been making them vulnerable uh, to both interception and counterattack. Um, I mean, obviously, Western intelligence is helping, uh, helping whether or not, you know, however the Ukrainians use them, whether it's to kill generals or sink warships or do whatever. Once you provide a nation intelligence, they will do with that intelligence what they what they uh, will do with it. Um, ultimately, what are the command and control lessons here at a time when everybody is trying to build a joint all domain command and control system, right? I mean, that's a priority in the United States. UK military has been working to an end of a much, much better and more integrated uh, command and control network as well. What are some of the command and control lessons of this conflict that you think should be shaping how Western militaries think about okay, tackling I'll begin, this problem? I'll begin with your point on intelligence. One feature of the wars that were fought in Iraq and Afghanistan by US and UK forces is as the wars went on, strategic intelligence was increasingly integrated with tactical forces 
for tactic tactical effects, something that had previously really only happened in soft. So the idea that externally supplied strategic intelligence can have tactical effect is really nothing new. The UK has admitted in public that it's supplying intelligence. I wouldn't be surprised if the whole of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance had got, got behind Ukraine. We should also remember that Ukraine has been collecting intelligence on its own, including from inside Russia, since 2014. And I suspect its own intelligence services are very well developed as well. So that's one facet of command and control. Um, quite clearly, Russia's had a problem here. Now, it may be because of the very short notice that was given to a lot of Russian formations that what they thought was an exercise was actually going to be a war, meant that they had difficulty properly setting up and synchronizing their command networks. Now, that's an especial problem uh, with secure communications. It may also have been a, future, a feature of Russia's uh, digital communications, which may explain why they made so much use of uh, mobile telephones. I think we should remember also that the last time Russia did an operation of this size and scale, it was the invasion of um, Czechoslovakia in 1968, where of course there was no armed uh, opposition. But quite clearly, um, the, as you say, the Ukrainians have had a much more flexible and adaptable system. Now, this may reflect that Ukraine has been planning uh, for war with Russia uh, for the best part of five or six years and put a considerable amount of um, thought into how it might have uh, a multiple redundant self-organizing command and control system. Uh, quite clearly, whatever the Ukrainian system is, President Zelensky has been able to retain uh, control of his government and control of his, his, of his forces. Um, I think at the tact tactical level, what we've probably seen with the Ukrainian forces is the benefit of half a decade's worth of training and advice uh, from an informal coalition of nations, principally the US, the UK, Canada, uh, Poland and Lithuania, who've had substantive uh, training missions, you know, varying from squad level tactics to senior retired officers and advising the army chief and the Ministry of Defence, and it may be uh, that the US, UK and NATO approach to mission command and devolving responsibility to the lowest possible level has had the overall benefit of making the uh, Ukrainian forces more agile and more willing uh, to improvise in the heat of battle. For example, we have seen some evidence of quite clever ambushes where Ukrainian forces have swarmed against the enemy. They've marched to the sound of the guns and then equally rapidly dispersed afterwards. It's also been the case that the regular Ukrainian army has been able to integrate very well with the territorial defense force, um, who of course living locally know the ground uh, much better than the regular army recruited from all over the country. And that ability to integrate between regular forces and local militias is again, um, you know, it was a success factor in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it appears to have been a success factor in this war. I want to ask you and, and pull on this uh, lesson string a little bit, uh, right, Ben? Because at the top, you said, you know, have a strategy. Putin doesn't have a strategy. The tactics are bad. The comms are bad. The logistics awful, uh, right? Motivation isn't there. So, I mean, it's, it's basically he's committing every sin in the book. And as Napoleon would say, when your adversary is making a mistake, don't correct them. Um, how 
many of the lessons that we're learning are relevant also to a China-Taiwan scenario, for example. And, and does, is, is, is the Falklands conflict, which Beijing spends a lot of time studying, uh, in part because of the similarities, right? I mean, you were, t- uh, you know, the supply supply lines may have been strained, but Britain was able to support a force a couple of hundred miles off the Argentine coast from eight thousand miles away. Um, you know, what what are the lessons we're learning that are applicable in a Taiwan China scenario? Um, and is the Falklands actually a better guide for that forty years on? Vargo, let's let's take that point first, and then go on to. Um the discussions within the US Marine Corps. The Falklands is well, is relevant to China-Taiwan, but the distance, of course, is much closer. Uh, one advantage, for example, the British had in the Falklands is their lengthy sea and air line commun- of communication was not effectively interfered with uh, by Argentina, um, other than within a few hundred miles of, 100 miles of the Falklands. Uh, it certainly showed the value of um, sea skimming missiles, the Exocet, uh, launched both from the land and the air, and potentially launched from the sea, as uh, both sides had ship-mounted Exocets, which in the in the event were not were not used. I mean, it also showed the key importance of naval gunfire support, and having an experienced amphibious force. Um, and an experienced amphibious force, you've got to have a landing force which knows how to land and knows how to interact uh, with the actual uh, amphibious force. And one of the strengths of the British in the Falklands War was that the amphibious task group and the uh, Royal Marines Commando Brigade were very well trained together and thoroughly knew and understand each other. Uh, the Army's 5th Infantry Brigade had not had any previous amphibious experience and it showed particularly in the avoidable casualties uh, that were sustained in the bombing of the assault assault ship at Fitzroy. Um, So all of those are are relevant factors. I think what Ukraine does show is is how important it is when you get ashore uh, or when you attack the shore for the attacker to have naval gunfire support and air superiority and for the defender to have a lot of artillery and be prepared to use it. Um, I would say, though, that there are other campaigns that are relevant. Uh, The US Marine Corps and US Army um, amphibious campaigns in the Pacific 44-45, and also the amphibious landings in Europe, particularly um, in Sicily, in Italy, and uh, Operation Overlord at D-Day in Normandy. That makes me suggest think that the US Marines seem to be pointing themselves in a very specialist direction. But if there were a China-Taiwan war or a China-Japan confrontation, or indeed a second war on the Korean Peninsula, uh, you might find that what needed to be delivered by the Marines was a pretty conventional force uh, to work alongside the the US Army. Now, the US Army would have tanks to loan to the Marines if the Marines fell short and also conventional artillery. But again, that's something that might need to be planned for and trained for. Uh, When I look at um, what I understand of of the Marines alterations, I do wonder if they've underestimated the utility of both conventional artillery and tanks in countering enemy um, landings. 
for example, conventional artillery can fire at ships coming close in to the limit of its range and have a devastating effect. Uh, so can tanks, and tanks can do this in two ways. Not only is a ship a thoroughly easy target to hit uh, using direct fire, be it a high explosive or armor piercing shell, but secondly, um, tanks can fire in a semi-indirect fire like artillery. For example, a 120 millimeter gun on British Challenger tanks can be used in that fashion out to 20, 22 kilometers. Um, and I wonder whether the US Marines have, take, have taken that into, into account. Um, the other thing is, is if you are fighting on land and you're up against an opponent that's got lots of air power, uh, lots of artillery, lots of naval gunfire gun support, if you tend to move unprotected, you're gonna suffer heavier casualties than if you've got some protected mobility to help you move around. One of the things that we've seen um, consistently by Western militaries, certainly over the span of many decades, is to continue to shrink under uh, the mantra that we wanna be more capable. So we're willing to trade away capacity for capability. But now we're getting into boutique levels of items. And as we've seen, uh, whether in Iraq, whether in Afghanistan, whether in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, whether or not in Ukraine, that when the shooting starts, you consume mountains of equipment whether they're MRAPs, whether they're Land Rovers, whether they're ARC tanks, whether they're armored personnel carriers, um, you know, whether, whether they're missiles, drones, or artillery rounds. Uh, and sadly, people fall into that category. The Ukrainians uh, are losing 75 to 90 soldiers a day. Uh, for a country of 44 million people, you can argue, well, that's not that bad until you start to do the math. We're in the 90th, you know, 90th, you know, we're through more than three months into this war now. Um, from your standpoint, and, and armies are still getting smaller in the, in the U.S. Uh, budget, uh, Ben, each of the military services is getting smaller under this drive to have higher end capabilities that will be better deterrent to China and more focused at fighting China. From your standpoint, what's the value of actually having some mass? British Army has been decimated over the last couple of years. What, what's the value of not just volume of people, but also volume of equipment um, and our governments being realistic enough about the rate at which things will be burned through. I'm not sure there are, they are. I wonder if Ukraine has come to a, has come as a rude shock um, to those who are responsible for setting and then funding uh, stockpiles of ammunition and equipment. I mean, I think it's been well reported that the US factory for Javelin missiles at the start of the Ukraine war was only capable of manufacturing 2,200 a year. Now, I think this, this tells you something about the mix of weapons that you need to have in an army. Because if you take uh, a Javelin missile, it's very exquisite. You know, it's got a top of the range thermal camera in the nose, which is destroyed uh, when it hits its target. A tank gun, on the other hand, fires a much cheaper round of ammunition, but all the sophistications in the tank turret. Um, so if you were fighting a long, intense war, you could find that you burn through all your stock of expensive precision weapons quite quickly. But if all your force is equipped with is smart, expensive precision weapons, you could become completely incapable. I think a balanced land force needs a mixture of uh, expensive smart weapons and uh, dumb, 
cheap weapons, which can still be, you can still have a lot of. You can also have capabilities that are in between. For example, I've heard that a Excalibur shell for a 155 millimeter or a guided MLS round, you don't see much change from $100,000, but a less accurate, but still usable precision guidance kit for fitting to a 155 shell uh, using GPS retails for just a few thousand dollars. And those are uh, published US government, uh, government figures. I also worry about taking out uh, conventional land capability based on assumptions of performance uh, by ISR and deep strike forces. You see this with the British Army, where it's only uh, heavy division, the third division, is going to increase its deep strike and ISR capability with a whole brigade dedicated to this and uh, doubling of the size of its electronic warfare and MLRS capability. But at the same time, to fund this, it's getting rid of one of its three armoured brigade combat teams. Well, there aren't many other NATO armies whose divisions have only two ground manoeuvre brigades. Just think, for example, if you've only got two uh, armoured brigade combat teams instead of three, you'll find it much more difficult uh, to generate a reserve. I also think, Vargo, there's a, an important human factor here, uh, which when the dust settles of, over Ukraine, I think is, is worth investigating. And that's the impact of casualties. Now, if you're in peacetime or you don't expect many casualties, you can afford to reduce the size of your platoons and the size of your squads or indeed the size of your gun crews. Of course, in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, once a, a, a small unit had taken a casualty, uh, the operation stopped for that small unit and it looked after the casualty and tried to get evacuated by ambulance or helicopter. Now, if your small unit is four people, take one casualty and that small unit is fixed till the casualty is evacuated. If your small unit is eight people though, if it takes one casualty, at least four or five of them can keep, keep fighting. Um, and this argues for larger small units rather than smaller ones. And um, I think there might be some uncomfortable lessons that might come when we look at the impact of casualties in Ukraine. Uh, by the way, um, this is an area that both parties to the conflict seem keen um, not to share information on. I mean, the Ukrainian government is making what seems to me to be pretty reasonable claims about Russian casualties. Russia is, isn't uh, acknowledging them, but I'm told by many international journalists that requests to visit Ukrainian military medical facilities have been denied. Nations don't like to learn, Ben, unfortunately, uncomfortable lessons. Um, right? I mean, any leader of most countries wants to be seen as uh, this is a vindication of the strategy and the angle and the direction we're, we're headed in. We've, we've heard that from military leaders across the alliance. Um, some have been very, very candid uh, in, in, in terms of um, we got it wrong and uh, changes uh, to be made. I think there has been some changes, for example, in France and in Paris, uh, where you know folks did not judge uh, the likely, right? I mean, did not make an accurate estimation. Uh, the intelligence estimates were wrong about whether or not the Russians were going to invade. There's been a little bit of soul searching across the alliance. Um, from, from your standpoint, what are, what are the wrong lessons to be learning? Well, from Ukraine, I'd say the wrong lesson to learn is that the tank is dead. 
um, because the, the, the Russian tanks, in a sense, weren't given a chance to act properly as tanks because they had low level tactics and their leadership was so, was so poor. Um, I think from Armenia, Azerbaijan, with those two nations, we also saw uh, quite clever, clever curating of the images, particularly by Azerbaijan. There was much um, media commentary and also military commentators focus on the use of drones and loitering munitions. But as well as that, it seems to me to have been a fairly conventional infantry heavy combined arms war over difficult terrain, including steep hills, some mountains, uh, fighting for important urban, urban areas. Um, and it seems to me that the Azeris were much better trained, much better equipped, and had a much better plan and better leadership. Um, so we must remember the key role of leadership and training. And on this, you know, there does appear to be a training gap um, within NATO. The US Army is still sending uh, 10 heavy BCTs a year to the National Training Center. It's still putting light forces through the Joint Readiness Training Center, and it's still making maximum use for Grafenwehr. I don't think that that level of exercising is replicated in uh, many, if any, uh, other armies in Europe. Quite clearly, it wasn't replicated, replicated in Russia. Um, I mean, there's another interesting thing I'd offer about logistics. Um, when Defend UK Defence Secretary um, Ben Wallace in late February in an attempt to avert the war, uh, called on um, Defence Minister Shoigu and General Gerasimov. General Gerasimov's parting words to Wallace was, I have 130 battalion tactical groups and nobody is going to tell Russia what to do anymore. Well, it, the widespread figure quoted, including from Western intelligence, is the total size of the force assembled around Ukraine was about 170,000 troops. Interesting, that is the overall number of troops that were assembled uh, in Kuwait just before Operation Iraqi Freedom kicked off. But at the height of Operation Iraqi Freedom, there was effectively five coalition divisions advancing from Kuwait um, and the equivalent of 50 battalion tactical groups. Why the difference? It's because in Kuwait, there, are a lot of, there was a lot of combat support and a lot of combat service support. And although a couple of times on five corps um, advanced to Baghdad, the corps had fuel supply problems. Uh, they never ran out of ammunition uh, or fuel. Um, and it's because they, you know, out of that 170,000 troops, there was adequate amounts of logistics, signals, um, aviation, medical, you name it. And I think what that tells us is that for any land force, you need a force that's got a balance between combat, combat support, and logistics, medical combat service support, quite clearly. Um, the Russians seem not to have achieved that. From a logistics standpoint, though, are Western armies as good as they need to be? And then to the industrial base question, right? It was in Libya, Ben, that we saw a shortage of precision munitions. Uh, there was a crash program to try to uh, address it on the part of European militaries. Um, 
ultimately, are, have we been drawing the right industrial-based lessons? I mean, during Iraq and Afghanistan, we did quite get good at urgent operational requirements. But I have to say, as a general rule, everybody turned to America, right? I mean, the Predator became something very uh, important, full disclosure. Uh, General Atomics is, is the sponsor uh, of our program and, and uh, the developer uh, of, of the Predator, right? It was a terrific capability and people decided not to polish the cannonball or, or reinvent the wheel, I should probably say, not polish the cannonball. But from, from your perspective, is is Europe deriving the right lessons and creating that industrial base resilience to be able to produce things as quickly as they need to be produced? I mean, Britain surged in a way that was remarkable during the Falklands Islands War, even for its brevity. An, an aircraft carrier, the delivery, you know, Illustrious's delivery was accelerated uh, dramatically. So, so were other bits of equipment. Uh, and, and capabilities. I mean, from your standpoint, are, are we drawing the right lesson in terms of industrial-based resilience, I guess, is where I am. Margot, I'll admit I don't have the detail on this, and some of it you would expect uh, both the US and European armed forces to keep secret. Um, I personally was on the um, initial NATO intervention in Bosnia, the NATO implementation force, and although British forces were generally well supplied logistically, uh, there were a couple of times when we came with an inch of running out of fuel. Um, and I twice had to actually ground my battle group because I wouldn't, wasn't certain I'd have enough fuel in the tanks either to deal with an emergency, to fight my way out of something, or indeed to move casualties back quickly, quickly enough. That only happened a couple of times, but it was due to poor serviceability of the British fuel tankers, and also incompatibility between the logistic IT system and the British trunk communications net. So I know what logistics shortages feel like. You don't want to be feel, feeling them. Um, but look, I think, um, you know, every country will need to take a long, hard look at the size of its stockpile and where its stockpile is, in, is inadequate. Um, spend money on buying the stuff to fill it up. I think also there needs to be awkward, well, not necessarily awkward, but frank, but private conversations with defence industrial suppliers to see how quickly uh, they could ramp up production, you know, how quickly you could put uh, the factory that makes Javelin missiles on um, three shifts a day seven, day, seven days a week. And within that, you've got to... Um, assure your supply chain against the supplies of components. And I think in some cases, it will you will need to have this difficult conversation inside an armed force about the balance between expensive, exquisite smart weapons and cheaper, dumber weapons, which you can stockpile uh, more of. And they're also, they're simpler and easier to, easier to use. Um, just one word on the Falklands. Uh, the British, fortunately for themselves, actually had the legal authorities and the command and management structures in place to actually effectively requisition ships and put naval parties on them. And it seemed to work extremely well, whether it was the two great cruise liners, the Canberra and the Queen Elizabeth II, along with some mer many merchant ships, big freighters like the Atlantic Conveyor and roll-on, roll-off ferries that plied across the North Sea. 
were all taken up for trade, which basically means that they were requisitioned by the government and the Royal Navy still had the ability uh, to plan for this. They knew enough about the shipping sector to know what they wanted and what was available. And also they put naval parties onto those ships so that they could be integrated into the main task force and particularly into the amphibious task force. Ben, let me ask you, you know, we asked this question of all uh, the people who participate on this podcast, which is to sort of give us examples of sort of good strategy worth emulating and bad strategy that should serve as a as a cautionary uh, tale. From from your standpoint, what what's good strategy worth emulating and what's bad strategy worth uh, an example of each uh, one to emulate, one to avoid? OK, good strategy. Uh, to emulate is the UK in the Falklands and the US in Desert Storm. Uh, Bad strategy is the US in Iraq. I'd also say that the bad strategy is very responsible for the outcome that that has been achieved in Afghanistan. And this is important because it seems to me that the vast majority of the US and Western defense industrial complex appears in denial about the Taliban victory in Afghanistan. It was a Taliban victory and it was a defeat for the West. It was a defeat for the US and its allies. It was also a defeat in the battle of ideas. And it was a defeat for all those decent Afghans who, if you like, had signed up to the Western vision of democracy, of rule of law, of a free market economy and of emancipation of women. But I think it's a disgrace that um, senior leaders in the defense sector and in defense industry don't want to talk about this. There was a Taliban campaign uh, that expertly combined ground maneuver, uh, various different types of propaganda and negotiating with the enemy. Today, there's much talk in the US and the UK about enduring engagement with our partners, about capacity building, and the US rightly celebrates uh, what the Army's Security Force Assistance Brigades are doing. But the most extensive partnership and capacity building operation in the history of the US and its allies ended in failure. Uh, With the exception of Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, I think a question has to be asked is why this a conversation about this and the lessons isn't happening. I think on good strategy, we also need to face up to the fact that Iran, Iran's strategy for Iraq succeeded much more than the US or the British one did, largely through the agency of Quds Force, expertly led by General Qasim Soleimani, who I've assessed as the most successful general of the Iraq war. So we've also got to assess that the Taliban strategy succeeded in Afghanistan and also Pakistan's strategy also seems to have exceeded more, succeeded more than that of the US government, the Afghan government and their allies. Sorry to end on a high note. No, no, no. Um, let me ask one follow-up question, right? Um, there is no doubt that the... Uh, U.S. and indeed the Allied exit uh, from Afghanistan was shambolic. Um, everybody, there should have been a greater assumption that things would go wrong faster 
uh, I had this conversation with not just U.S. officials, but British uh, officials, uh, and there was an expectation that things would not unravel as quickly as they did. Uh, in part, um, they were surprised Ashraf Ghani ran. There was every evidence that actually the Taliban didn't want to go into Kabul and, and indeed would have preferred some sort of, we control most of the country, the government is in power in Kabul, we continue to get international aid, um, you know, that, that sort of thing. There was that sense. Um, as hard as this is to say, would we have had the bandwidth to do Ukraine the way we're doing it if we were still worried about Afghanistan? Or do you think that that's... Do, have we developed an ability to walk and chew gum at the same time, not to use an Lyndon Baines Johnson expression on this. I mean, would, would we have had the bandwidth if we were still engaged in Afghanistan, from your standpoint, to do Well, I think Ukraine? so, because it, we're not directly engaged in Ukraine. Uh, we are helping the Ukrainians, and the capabilities that are helping them are pretty different to the capabilities that were used in Afghanistan for much of the uh, period since 20, 2014, when the US and NATO um, suspended most combat operations. There's a possible world in which the Doha agreement was not made and the US continued its low footprint of special forces, uh, but its level of um, offensive air support uh, that it was conducting between 2014 and 2018. If that was still the situation in Afghanistan, I suspect the US and its allies um, could commit to Ukraine in the way that they've been committing. I just want to say one other thing about Ukraine to, um, that your listeners might be interested in. Although I'm sometimes critical of the UK uh, Minister of Defence and the UK Armed Forces, uh, the British Army has really stepped up to the plate for NATO. Um, before Ukraine, they had one small heavy battle group uh, in Estonia as the lead element of NATO's enhanced forward presence. Uh, they doubled the size of the footprint in Estonia and also sent uh, the headquarters of the 20th Armoured Brigade, from which both battle groups came. Uh, they sent a tank company to uh, Finland to join an exercise there. Effectively, um, three quarters of their heavy metal capabilities currently on the continent of Europe. They've also got a significant task force of paratroops Apache and Chinook helicopters in Macedonia playing the major part in the NATO exercise there. And they've done this quite quickly. Uh, the only other army in Europe, which I think has such a wide footprint and that has moved so quickly to reinforce um, Eastern and Southern Europe is actually the US army in Europe. I don't uh, see any evidence that the other major armies in Europe, um, the French, the Germans, the Spanish, the Italians, Italians have deployed uh, combat forces to reassure NATO uh, so rapidly. But I think there is an interesting effect of Ukraine. There's been this, this upward lift of defence budgets in Europe, uh, particularly the German defence budget. The amount of money that's been pledged by Chancellor Scholz um, would mean that Germany would overtake Britain as the second largest spender in NATO and could well become the third largest defence spender in the world, which should remove much of the hollowing out that the German army has suffered from uh, since the financial crisis of 2008. And remember, 
Germany doesn't have any nuclear weapons. Uh, the German army has three divisions, two armoured uh, and one an, an air manoeuvre division. Uh, the British army can really only generate one division uh, to reinforce NATO. So if uh, the modernization of the German armed forces is funded and funded effectively in the way that the German government has said it will, uh, Germany could become the most pre preeminent army uh, in NATO, Europe. Yeah, and, and indeed, right, $100 billion is a lot of money that goes to conventional modernization if you're not developing a warhead, buying a ballistic missile, and then yeah. developing a new class of ballistic missile uh, submarines and operating a nuclear submarine fleet as well yeah. um, at the level of um, um, safety and precision with which the Royal Navy has since uh, 1958. Um, let me just quickly go to Asia um, and your assessment of how the United States, um, right? I mean, there's a big debate about the use of land power in Asia, um, uh, right? There's a sense that this is more of a naval uh, and air theater, even if uh, army leaders rightfully point out, you know, the people don't live on the water, except for a couple of, uh, you know, tribes across the region. Generally, people are living on the land where you have to affect outcomes. Uh, and that the Chinese, if they do something, are likely to actually invade uh, Taiwan, uh, a country with topography a lot closer to Norway, for example, than, than Ukraine. Um, are, are, are the United States and its Asia and Pacific allies doing the right things from your standpoint to deter um, and you can put your broad strategy hat on because I know that your skills are very cross-cutting. You know, we're using you as an army strategist on this one, Ben, but you are a cross-cutting defense thinker. But also whether on the land warfare side, we have as full of an appreciation and understanding of what the land component will be, or will the land component be reduced to, and not minimizing it, right? Special operations, air and missile defense long-range fires, all of the things that are very important, even if it's not sort of conventional armored maneuver, for example. I mean, how, how is it we need to think about land power in the Pacific and especially in a Taiwan um, or, or archipelagic strategy from your perspective? Okay. Um, the Indo-Pacific contains a number of flashpoints, not just China, Taiwan uh, or uh, DPRK in South Korea. Uh, but also prospectively Japan and Russia, uh, India and China, and indeed India, Pakistan. Now, I don't see much chance of Western uh, forces being involved in any war between India and China and India and Pakistan, although all three states are nuclear ones and any nuclear exchange would be a disaster and could have some very difficult implications, for example, for uh, food production hum and human, secur human security. But there are plenty of countries where there are large armies that have political significance. Pakistan is an example where the army has much more political autonomy as an actor uh, than many armies in many democratic countries. Uh, Indonesia is another uh, country where there's a large army that's politically important. Um, and it may well be the case that in the DPRK, the army is important. And China, of course, has the largest army, army in the world. So even if there's no conflict, um, credibly engaging with those armies and where necessary deterring them is very important for the forces of the US and its allies and partners in the region. Um, I think what you have got, though, is there are many countries in the region 
that don't want to have to choose politically between China, particularly economic engagement, and between the US and its European uh, and Australian and New Zealand allies in terms of security. So they have a somewhat equivocal policy, and this is sometimes reflected in the work that ASEAN, ASEAN does, uh, of course, but when pushed, push comes to shove, uh, they might want to choose rapidly. Now, what this does mean is that HQ Indo-PACOM has an extremely important role and would obviously be in the lead in any improvised coalition operation uh, where US forces, forces engaged. I think with regard to uh, the role of armies, if the balloon goes up and if the, shout, the shooting starts, I think quite clearly there will be a large land dimension uh, to any second Korean war. And I recall um, that this has actually been studied by Rand Corporation, who several years ago wrote, wrote a number of extremely useful uh, reports on this. And a, a, a second war in the Korean peninsula might well combine the intensity um, of the war in Ukraine with terrain that was even more difficult, particularly in, in winter. Um, I think the thing with China-Taiwan is that there probably would be a very high degree of attrition in the air and maritime environment, possibly on both sides initially. But if China did manage to achieve a foothold, uh, Taiwan might be grateful for all the land assistance it could, it could get. I think this also leads back to uh, the interesting conversation that's happening in the US Marine Corps, and particularly amongst senior retired Marines and those that have a healthy interest in the uh, future of one of the world's finest fighting forces. Um, but if it is to specialize in supporting literal maneuver in terms of denying uh, sea space um, to China, uh, that's an important job. And you could see that pieces of land that were seized by the Marine Corps, um, China, if it wanted to, might concentrate in attempting to neutralize those, including uh, landing with landing with landing forces. Um, so you could see quite a three-dimensional land, sea, air, space and cyberspace and information um, battle around any conflict in the uh, Asia Pacific where shooting started. You know, what, one of the foundational elements of the way um, certainly the Marine Corps, but each of the US military services are thinking about uh, the Pacific is sort of, you know, small numbers of very, very agile forces that are constantly on the move. Um, and and the question then becomes, you know, can you is that logistically sustainable or even wise in an era where there could you know, there are area denial and hypersonic strike uh, systems in greater volume? Right. I mean, the Russians have demonstrated they may not have as much of that capability uh, as 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 uh, they would have liked, but they certainly have a very, very impressive cruise missile capability and, and have an ability to strike broadly from a U.S. perspective. What would I mean, is there. Does the strategy make a lot of sense? I mean, there are those who say, look, this has been war-gamed, it's highly classified, and it does work. But how, how do you execute a strategy like that, a land campaign like that, an archipelagic land campaign like that, and not actually impose greater logistical and other costs on you than, than you gain benefit from having done it? Because you have to be moving munitions around, smaller units, they still have to be fed, they still have to be watered, they still need fuel, right? So it's it's a... 
they may be able to affect things. But so how how is it you look at these, you know, agile small numbers of troops in many places strategy? Well, there's been two archipelagic archipelagic campaigns in the last hundred years. Uh, the US versus Japan in the Pacific and the Falklands War. And I think a lot of the lessons still apply. Um, about hypersonic and cruise missiles, it seems to me that they're best targeted against fixed installations like ports and airfields, but dispersed tactical forces are probably much less vulnerable, at least until um, effective hypersonic anti-ship missiles come, come along. Um, I still think that you're going to need a lot of stuff. And I'd, I'd also say that small agile forces are great until you start taking real casualties amongst the, the people in there. But um, as well as wargaming this, you know, in classified computer simulations, there's no, sh sh there's no substitute uh, for experimenting with this on exercises, uh, but exercises that include a cunning, agile, and fully capable enemy. Um, we, we have uh, about a minute left, so two big questions, but lightning round uh, answers. A, everybody focuses on China's uh, air, space, and naval capabilities, much less so on its army capabilities. How is the Chinese army reforming itself and stepping up its game? Well, it's modernizing its equipment. It's trying to do more realistic training to overcome its considerable lack of combat experience since 1979. And it's also played an ever increasing role in UN peacekeeping operations. Uh, something we mustn't forget as it does represent China making an important contribution to international security. Uh, and last question, is the United States Army on the right track in building up its capabilities against China as an adversary? Yes, but it also needs to build its capabilities against Russia as a peer adversary in Europe as well. And I think all the NATO army chiefs would reply in the same way. And what is required to do that? Well, first of all, to be able to demonstrate the presence and also that it can rapidly reinforce by exercises. And I think it's been doing that recently. It also needs a mixture of close combat against heavy armored forces, uh, artillery, long range precision fire, and also air and missile defense of which Europe has an overall shortage. Another military capability that Europe has an overall shortage of is military bridging. And perhaps the US Army has something to contribute there as well. Ben, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Uh, thanks so much for being so generous with your time and already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Valga.